This episode of The Wireless Reader is sponsored by the Atlantis Bookshop in London, UK. To experience the living history of magic, go to www.theatlantisbookshop.com or drop in at 49A Museum Street, right next to the British Museum. Okay, so I've got to fess up. This episode has taken an insanely long time to put together. There's no excuse, but there is a reason. And it's that I've been sitting looking at a problem for months. And it was a problem to do with the shape of the episode. From early on, it seemed to me that the stars were in alignment where this one was concerned. I had contributions from two extremely talented writers, Chris Salt, MBE, whose pamphlet Home Front Frontline is about the experiences of a mother as she watches her son go off to war. And it's about the correspondence from him to her, and it's about her thoughts and reflections while he's away. You'll hear for yourself, and perhaps you already have. She's an amazing poet and very personable as well. In fact, one of my favourite moments from the recording was when she insisted on trying out my leather trench coat. And I'm somewhat closer to seven foot than she is, and she's a lot closer to five than I am. And I very nearly had to send a search team into that coat. We're very lucky she emerged at all. Stephen H. McGregor is a fantastic writer, particularly of short stories and essays. He's been published by the Edinburgh Review. He's been a runner-up in the Shiva Naipaul Memorial Prize. And he's also been a captain in the U.S. Army serving in Iraq. And his short story is going to be appearing in this episode too. One of the characters in my 2014 novel, The Death of the Poet, is an Iraq vet from the First War. And this seemed too good an opportunity to be true. But I put the pieces together and something was wrong and I couldn't put my finger on it immediately. I've recorded the piece with somebody who does a much better Californian accent than I do, Mark Barr, because he is Californian. And then there he was, Michael Lang, hero of the Gulf War, lying in his bed with his upper half propped up on the ramp of pillows. His eyes open and vacant, surrounded by militaria, photographs, flowers, and empty packets of cheese doodlos. Mikey was 24, the pastor had told me. He looked almost like 45. As the pastor closed the door, I looked closer at Mikey's face, which was pulled taut over the cheekbone and pitted and creased like a sponge. He had alopecia, making his buzz cut seem moth-eaten. It's an the emotive scene. It stands up on its own. It's pivotal in the novel. It sounded John, good to me, but said, when I put it with the other two pieces, it. there was fine, something lacking. Like what I love about these episodes is the resonance between the pieces. I don't know. I couldn't quite figure out what wasn't there, and it's only been recently, and I, I do mean after a very long time that I figured out what the problem You see, part of the thesis behind The Death of the Poet is that if we can challenge stereotypes and predefined roles for women, and we can and we should and we've got to press on with that, so too must we challenge the roles that seem to be predestined for men. I don't think you can affect changes that will stick for one half of society if the other half is still burdened with outdated roles and outdated ways of thinking. It's going to just drag everything back to the way it was. In particular, we've quite obviously got a massive gendered problem with violence. We seem on the whole to be quite accepting of the fact that men do violence. And whilst we all abhor the effects of violence and a lot of work is done to try to protect people from that violence, as a society... 
far from dissuading people of the male gender that violence is part and parcel of their lot, we reinforce the idea in so many ways, uh, some of them very unsubtle. Just look at any Hollywood film. Look how cheap male life in particular is. Look at how awash with male hero figures it is. And the apogee of being a male, that moment when you transcend your own fears and you walk into a moment of ultimate self-sacrifice where you know that violence will rain down upon you. Uh, but you're doing it for some higher purpose. There's an endless amount to say about this, hence the novel-length form that I tried to approach it in. I also wrote an article for The Telegraph. I think it's online if you're interested. But the point is, in writing about the experience of war, there's a comprehension gap to be bridged. The position of being a man at that moment isn't very relatable. Don't get me wrong, I'm not knocking soldiery. I'm not pretending there isn't sometimes a need to fight. But oftentimes when you read accounts of atrocious situations recorded by soldiers, the striking thing is how balanced and emotionless the testimony is. Listen to the Imperial War Museum's frontline accounts. Listen to Chris Salt's son's letters. You can't be an emotional wreck on the front line in order to, for example, exist in uh, the trenches in World War I. Well, emotion's not a very useful thing to have, and it's positively discouraged as it is societally. And this is part of the problem. My soldier lying in a hospital bed talking about his experiences talks about the concrete, the material. He suppresses his emotion because that's what's expected of him. And that's very realistic, but it's also very unrelatable. It leaves the door wide open for lazy thinking to believe that men are somehow comfortable with being mixed up in violence because, well, they never complain about it. And after all, aren't they always the antagonists and seldom the victims? Well, answers to that in the Telegraph piece. But at last I had my answer. I realised what the residence issue was. I realised why that first piece wasn't going to work in this episode. And so, despite the title referring directly to Iraq and the, the mighty river there, the piece I've decided to include from my novel is a piece that relates to World War I. It's interesting, actually, how much of the warfare technique that went on in the trenches in Europe was still being used as a method of warfare during the Iran-Iraq war. Mustard gas, trenches, the whole nine yards. So my piece has something to do with Iraq and everything to do with writing about war. I'm indebted to Anthony Marion for reading it and to Peter Kuhnert for providing the music for this episode. Tigress, burning bright. He comes in the morning with skin soft as rabbits, kicking against my palm with lickable buttery toes. This is Chris Salt. By lunch, he's a storming question mark of what is it's and why's ad nauseam, full stops of heel digging nose. By afternoon, he's bombing the shed, bang bang, you're dead, bullets flying, dad on the lawn, writhing in pantomime death throes. By tea, he's tearing away, badged with aftershave, two digits to the clock, a puppy man out in his gay dog clothes. By evening, he's leaving, kit bag packed with his favourite mug, photos of girl and home, desert boots, flapjacks, a wind-up radio. By nightfall, I'm praying down on my knees out of habit for anyone out there to come for anyone out there to come Mum 
Greetings from the sun. Arrived this morning after an epic 30-hour journey. It took a complete age. I'm now in a massive tent in the desert in the country we guessed I would be in. I'm in F battery, as I hoped, doing a very important job. I'm one day in the country, one day closer to home. A pair of squalling gannets scuff the beach. The sun, a pale balloon, is out of reach, and the summer child who had it tight walks with his mother in the dimming light towards the safe sea wall. And beyond the long horizon, men massing with their guns, fathers, husbands, boyfriends, lovers, other mothers' sons. A turntail tide runs out and drops her shawl of froth and weed. A milk-eyed mackerel, lost from a fisher's evening hall, lolls like a lazy bather in a pool under the safe sea wall. And beyond the long horizon, men massing with their guns, fathers, husbands, boyfriends, lovers, other mothers' sons. An open page of sand blurs to peach bloom, scribbled with graffiti of the sandworm and the scatty hieroglyphs of feet of child and seabird on its fading sheet under the safe sea wall. And beyond the long horizon, men massing with their guns, fathers, husbands, boyfriends, lovers, other mothers' sons. I read in jetsam war's lunatic symbols, the shingles' bone screed, sucking crab holes, burying the living, arms of trees, boat shard, sheep hull, carnage of savage seas under the safe sea wall. And beyond the long horizon, men are massing with their guns, fathers, Husbands, boyfriends, lovers, fathers, husbands, boyfriends, lovers, fathers, husbands, boyfriends, lovers, and other mothers' sons. We've gone straight into roles since we landed. No time for too much chat. The firepower out here is awesome. There are jet fighters and every bit of kit you can imagine to make it as quick as possible. The latest estimates are six months before we get home. Collateral damage, shock and awe. Where are the meanings that we had before? Gives language a bad name, does war. Shock was his shaggy mane of hair until now, a dozen corn sheaves stacked together in a field, something you got a bit of. How did it come to mean this nightly slaughter, every tooth in the city shaken? And awe. Crouched under amputations of falling glass, do they wonder at those sublime illuminations that rip homes and schools from under them when targets are mistaken? Collateral. Now there's a word misspent. No longer money pledged against a loan, 
but children, burned alive in the bent wreckage of a car, a hand blown from a wrist, splashed brains, backs broken. Collateral damage, shock and awe. Where are the meanings that we had before? Gives language a bad name, does war. The war is six or seven days old. I have a very important job. In fact, I was the sixth soldier across the border from Kuwait. I work with three other guys and we look after each other. I have seen the very best of people in the last few days. It is a wonder to be part of such a fine body of soldiers. It was so stupidly haphazard, the air pistol you aimed at the sparrow on the roof ridge. How could you hit anything so small at that distance? One minute chirruping, the next nemesis. We watched it bump down the slate slide, flip the guttering and roly-poly to a patch of thistles upside down. His eyes were dimming in his ragdoll head when you retrieved him, mouth soft and oozing blood. You hulled the still warm dead thing in your teenage hand, a bent clawed hieroglyphic, not yet understood. Advancing north and meeting lots of resistance which we are dealing with in a very final way. I'm not sure how I will feel about the end result of what we do, but I'm sure when this is over I would have plenty of time to reflect. I got the sunglasses package, thanks very much, they are just ideal. I'm in the best of company with everything I need. I miss you, can't wait to come home, you need not worry. The sun is blazing hot beyond belief, and it's only spring. I am not angry with the sun. It can't be blamed for lighting up the tumbling stars of the magnolia and polishing the evergreens on this day of all days, when families in lorries, cars and donkey carts flee from their frightened cities, her blistering sister on their backs. I am not angry with the spring. It does not mean to open like a box of paints, splashing japonica and daffodil down all the neighbouring gardens. On this day, of all days, the tigress rocked on her anchor from Baghdad to Nineveh, and the bomb-shot sky blooming with deadlier flowers. I am not angry with the earth. It can't avoid rebirth, delivering greening march on sprung beds of last year's leaf mould, on this day of all days, when sons, fresh killed, go home in body bags to lie forever under it in Devon villages. Iraqi sands. We've had a couple of near misses which has brought us all closer together. At the moment we're firing on a mortar line which is engaging our troops so as you can imagine the time to write is scarce. I've tried to call but the satellite phone is very unreliable. 
I will call when I can. The rumour is that the war is not very popular at home. But please let me know. When we went over the top, we didn't really know what to expect. We'd hardly glimpsed no man's land in daylight with our own eyes. We'd always been told to keep our heads down because of the snipers, you see. The colonel blew the whistle, and he said, Up you go, lads. Most of the men were tight. They passed round this Dixie of rum while we were waiting, unrestricted. Some of them were so blotto they didn't know where they were. I felt heroic. Foolish, but there it was. Our objective was to get across no man's land, which was overlooked by German-held colliery towers and slag heaps, and capture the town beyond. Most of my men were northerners, from places like Accrington and Leeds. We were a northern regiment, after all. They didn't take kindly to my London accent. I believe there was also a lot of resentment towards me because I'd got my promotion in Blighty. Some of the men had been regular army since long before the war and they hated taking orders from an upstart officer, especially one so young and inexperienced. I was telling men thirty years my senior what to do. Even some old soldiers who'd fought in the Africa campaigns, whole wars. Meanwhile, I had missed both of the big shows, Ypres and Festubert, merely by happening each time to be deployed elsewhere. I'd lost very few men until that point. Our part of the line had never made a name for itself. I had two sergeants, Sergeant Davis and Sergeant Yeoman. Davis was a wet blanket. I don't know how he got his stripes. He was a dentist in real life. Yeoman had been a track inspector for the railways. He didn't take any nonsense. The first time we went over the top, we were scared but we pretended that it was the cold making our teeth chatter. It was autumn in the Pas de Calais, and a mist hung over everything, and we'd fashioned ladders out of old bits of wood and stood them against the parapet, and the low trench was chock full of men waiting to go up. One of the men had had an accident, and while one or two crude comments were made about the smell, the others and the officers pretended not to notice. Overhead, our lot kept up the artillery barrage, it was utterly impressive, as though the sky were made of steel. So much for the shell shortage. Silver ribbons opening out across the sky, going from our guns to the German front lines. The noise was fearsome and the ground constantly shook. Then the time came and the barrage stopped completely and we heard whistles blowing. I blew my whistle and pulled my revolver and climbed up the ladder. Captain Neems led the first wave over and Captain Chinnery led the second. By the time Chinnery's lot were going over, the Bosch had realised what was up. Chinnery was standing at the top of the ladders, helping a man up, when a shell went up next to him. It killed a soldier, and we all got covered in his blood. It made the air taste of iron. Chinnery looked rattled and stood there, with his face dripping red, and then a gunshot got him through the side of his head, thwack, and down he went, dead. His arm was sticking out over the ledge by the ladder. Sergeant Yeoman saw that he'd better take over, and as he went up the ladder he shook poor Chinnery's hand by way of taking the sting out of the moment. 
every man behind Yeoman shook Chinnery's hand as they went over. I led the third wave. In the interval of three years, the atrocities of war have become clichés. One does not speak of them in polite society for fear of being dull. Before war broke out, no one discussed what a soldier actually did, other than in flighty heroic passages with rhyming line endings, or else castrato with schoolboy magniloquence. He smote a legion of the enemy, his plucky comrades fell. It was considered bad form to talk about it at all, and never in front of the fairer sex. Well, now the horror is out and we're drowning in poetry. One is faced with the evidence of war every day, in bath chairs in the park, in convalescence, their stumps dressed in white and blankets over their laps, their useless laps. We reach for high language with which to mourn. Well, I'll sell it on. I've nothing else to peddle except the myth of the ordinary hero, the poetry of Private James Lyons, the voice of a generation, epitome of doomed youth, a typical tragedy. What I fear is that war will never be understood, and soldiers especially. Not by the public at large, not by the women whose photographs they carry, when at some point soldiering boils down to putting all one's feelings away, erasing the self, being so much meat and bone, a number, a tin hat. You mustn't have a personality when you go over the top. That's the moment it all drives towards. That is the you that your country needs. And yet, how is the public to make a connection with these non-people? The only soldier most people recognise is a passionate soldier who expresses noble ideals and virtue and who has some purpose in his warcraft, some sense of agency. The women understand Rupert Brooke's patriotism, Brooke who never fought, better than they understand a thousand husbands who got called up did their duty, hid their fear, and whose corpses are out there now half lost in the mud. Are only the poets and the scoundrels to be heard? Is every other version of that misery to be dismissed as cliché because it does not entertain? What I have come to understand is that the ordinary man has neither the facility for relating his experience nor the desire to try. No, for most men, sharing how they happen to feel feels like a mortal breach, a failure of some sort. Talking about war merely infects the mental wounds. Have you never wondered why images of war seem hackneyed? It is because they must be given, if they are to be given truthfully, without feeling. One could not do what one must do if one felt too much. Feelings come much later, and in truth, one hopes never to feel. Consequently, if they talk, soldiers talk of trenches and bombs and no-man's land, the way they talk of factories and teapots and soccer, with a certain glib familiarity, making the machinery of war sound workaday, failing to excite their listeners' sensations for fear of exciting their own. Meanwhile, the experience of walking into the mouth of the machine is annexed by those who transform it into what it is not, a species of poetical experience. <laughs>
rather than an experience for which there are no words. When anyone reads an account of war given by men, they will know its veracity by its reserved tone, its inability to... Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. To make horrors come to life, its refusal to dwell on things, its readiness to look away. A true account will make the extreme seem prosaic, for that is what war does to you. It is not a failure of the material, nor some shortcoming in men's descriptive powers. Perhaps it is a problem of bridging the gulf between the ordinary and the martial. To someone who could not, from accounts given, feel the horror of an advance, I should offer the following challenge. First, imagine yourself obliged to walk from one end of a soccer pitch to the other. Picture yourself doing so. The weather is fine. You are alone. Count the seconds as they pass, as you cover the ground. All done? Very well. Next, imagine that same trip, but this time with a heavy rain having turned the ground to mud, the sort one's feet sink into up to the ankle. Hike up your skirts, roll up your trousers, and off you go once more, the full length of the pitch. Feel the cold rain soaking you through. Imagine what a bally time you'll be having of it, lucky if you don't fall flat on your face at some point. You slip and slide up the pitch, and lose a shoe, perhaps. Now let's try it once again, but this time with some blighter sitting in the stands taking pot shots at you with a rifle. Yes, a real rifle with bullets that will kill you if you're hit. Once again, I want you to make your way the whole way up that football pitch through the sucking mud whilst our friend tries to shoot you. It's an awful trek suddenly, isn't it? Next, I'll make you do all that again, and for good measure, this time you must carry a heavy pack on your back, making it much harder to get up if you should fall down, and a machine gunner will be positioned in the goal mouth towards which you are walking. His job is to kill you. There is nothing for you to hide behind, and you are not allowed to run even if you could through all that mud. The chap with the rifle will keep at you too. If you survive that, and very probably you will not survive, you'll be made to do it again, but this time with several further additions strewn in your way. Vast loops of barbed wire snagging you, perhaps even stopping you altogether, making you an easy target. Explosive mines under the mud that might go off if you step on them, blowing your legs off. And the mutilated bodies of some of your friends you grew up with, with whom you were sharing cocoa only last night. Amidst all of that, and with Chummy firing his rifle, he's been joined by twenty of his mates now, and they are all firing their rifles at you too. You must walk through the mud into the machine gun fire. Artillery shells are blowing up all around you making screaming noises as they come in. Smoke flares mean you can only see ten feet ahead. 
and if by some miracle you get through that lot, you'll arrive in a trench full of men, real, living men, in all their variety, speaking a foreign language, and you'll be obliged to shove your bayonet into as many of them as you possibly can. You, who has never wanted anything but a quiet life with your wife and your child. No one is made for that experience, not men, whatever the women like to believe, not anyone. And what words can ever communicate the interior life of a man at such a moment? Or afterwards when he wakes in the night, believing that he is still there? Instead, we describe the objects, the images, the murk, and hope somehow that our listener can supply the feelings. But they cannot, for it is an experience beyond all of that. That is why men cannot speak of war. And that is why I am afraid that the profoundest depths of hell all too quickly seem tired and familiar, while the poets extemporise and emote and the soldiers sit at home by their fires and shake. That was Anthony Marion reading an excerpt from The Death of the Poet by me and Quentin Wolfe, published by Serpent's Tale. The poet lifted his pen to touch the paper, but his tears kept falling, and the ink kept running towards him like advancing men. And soon they were in his house, ransacking cupboards and drawers, kicking the doors in, raping his wife in the corner, looking for something he had, but they did not. What are words, he said, what are they? I have forgotten. I had them last on a chair in my mother's garden under the fig tree when there were no soldiers with guns on their shoulders outside the ruins of the university and my neighbour had not been shot for lighting a cigarette on his balcony and my son had two legs to walk tall on. What are words, he said. What are they? I don't remember what they are and how to lay them end to end to measure this. The poet lifted his pen to touch the paper but his tears kept falling and the ink kept running towards him like advancing men. The musician lifted his hands to strike the keyboard but his hands were broken and the notes kept marching towards him in a nameless line. And soon they were marching on the Institute of Music and smashing the instruments, the tablas, the douzas, the violins and the santours, the pianos and the harps, burning the music of the maquams and the symphonies, the sonatas, the records and the history, for no reason under the sun. What are notes, he said, what are they? I have forgotten. I played them last on a tinny school piano with my daughter's index finger, the notes of O Finlandia, a song of peace for lands afar and mine. What are notes, he said, what are they? I don't remember how they sound or how they join together in a song. The musician lifted his hands to strike the keyboard, but his hands were broken, and the notes kept marching towards him in a nameless line.
Chris Salt reading from Homefront Frontline. It has suddenly gone very quiet. We're now moving from offensive warfighting operations to defensive footings, meaning in our area of operations in the southern part of Iraq. The desert is flat, sandy, very stony and full of shells, seashells, but also full of rubbish like old fridges and water bottles. There is desert scrub and wreckage from years of war. It really is the ugliest place in the world. It's like an episode of MASH out here, you wrote. Thanks for the sunglasses. I'm missing beer. We killed a goat. Night after night, bombs fell, mums grieved, kids died, the news exploding in our living room. We cried for them and you. We miss you. Hope it's over very soon. Anodyne replies. Just hoping you don't hear the semitones between the lines. Hello from Operation Telic. We have moved to a military base near Al Amarak, 20 kilometres from the Iranian border. We switch from war fighting to peace support operations and the pace is slowed. The base is like a very shit version of Butlins, no windows and the guests sleep on the floor. I sleep surrounded by friends, a mountain of jelly babies, curry powder and about 600 rounds of live ammunition. April the 9th, I write to say this is one historic day. The news shows scenes of looting, jubilation, anarchy. Iraqis throw flowers, shout, long live Bush. Saddam Hussein's bronze head is booted down the alleys of their broken city his toppled effigy, beaten with soles of shoes. I Google Baghdad, learn that the marshes of the Tigris and Euphrates are home to pelican and stork, that there are otters in those rivers, lions, wolves, gazelles are common, jeboas, hedgehogs, hares have made the marshland theirs. With all this talk of peace... I find that comforting. I have a few cartridges to bring home, one that was fired at a very big battle and one Iraqi. Have more photos of damaged tanks and Iraqi ammunition. Very worrying. Heart is set on going home, but head still on getting home safely. Taking less risks and still ready for trouble. Hope there isn't any more. Please send me a small saucepan, something to kill flies, mozzies, like a burning coil. All my love, from free Iraq. A little boy called Ali is a casualty of war. His body too septic and burnt and raw to touch the bed. How to explain to him this is what peace is? They blow off both his arms and offer a prosthesis. A BBC translator scoops a body from a car. Another six-year-old suicide bomber shot in the head. It makes the news because the cameras are there. Her hair clots in the dust, stroked by a stranger. 
the price of liberty, they said. In Abram's tanks, named Anguish, Arsonist, Anthrax and Agamemnon stenciled down a gun, the liberators protect the city. Kill them all, says the helmet of one terrified, fresh-faced marine. Too young to see the things he's seen. The pity of it all. The pity. Chris Salt has published three full poetry collections and four pamphlet collections, including the one you're listening to. Her poem, The Burning, from the collection Grass, published by Indigo Dreams, was selected as one of the 20 best Scottish poems in 2012. In 2014, her limited edition pamphlet, Weaver of Grass, was shortlisted for the Callum MacDonald Memorial Award. Dancing on a Rock is her 2015 publication via Indigo. Tally leaned forward in his chair, with his arms crossed on the back, feeling the sweat streak down his sides, and the ache in his shoulder where Lawson had been inking. Stephen H. McGregor. He stretched out his legs and inspected his bare feet, red and rough from all the kilometers of the last year of patrols, where there had once been white spots of blisters on his insteps and under his toes. There were now gray patches of dry skin, and the backs of his heels were shredded like used pencil erasers. On his right foot, two of his toenails had been rubbed off. When he spread his toes, they burned with the same dull pain as his shoulder, and he found he only noticed the pain when he thought about it. Otherwise, the feeling rested in the background, like the muted movie that was playing on Lawson's TV. The closed captioning appeared line by line. It was Rambo, First Blood, Part 2, and Rambo was storming a prisoner of war camp. The red bandana was tied around Rambo's hair, and there was dirt and sweat on his face and arms. And everything he did in this jungle, he did alone. And he had no team leaders or privates or chain of command. He drew back his bow and shot an arrow through the neck of the thin man hiding behind a fern. The dead body curled and fell away like a cinder. Lawson came back in the room and closed the door to his makeshift office, slipping a metal bar through a hasp on the door. It's going to get hot in here, but I have to close this, he said. First sergeant already caught me once. He sat on his bed the only furniture in the room besides Tally's chair. Whatever, man, just hurry up. I want this finished before my patrol tonight, Tally said. Never rush a tattoo, Lawson said as he adjusted his needle. You want this to be worth it, anyway. First sergeant said next man he catches is losing his job. Like I could get fired, Tally laughed. Yeah, you could lose your squad. Tally thought of his first week as a squad leader. It was summer in Kentucky, and he celebrated by drinking ten beers. Several days later, his phone rang at two in the morning, and it was Corporal D. He said his wife had a miscarriage, and he wanted to talk. Tally drove over to his house, and they sat on the front porch until sunrise, and it was time to report in for PT at Battalion. You want to finish this? Lawson patted Tally on the back. It's your first tat. I mean, I'm doing real good, but it's cool if you want a break. Tally wiped the sweat on his face. I want it done, he said. It's like my boots. I wrote my service number on them in case my head gets blown off. People know it's me. Same with the tat. I want this on my arm before the patrol tonight as a marker. No one else has one like this, that's for sure. Looks fucking badass. 
What's First Sergeant so pissed about? The money? No, he's worried you'll get diseases. But there was no sickness Tally couldn't kick. He stayed in the game with that broken collarbone he got on the football team as tight end. Then during the last week of basic training, he had a broken foot, but didn't tell anyone, and still graduated. In Kentucky, he got pneumonia from being in the field all night in the rain, and he was back at work in a few days. Even in Iraq, he had the seven-day sickness that some guys got when they arrived. Doc Beeson said it was from the sand in the air, but even still, Tally went on patrol and watched after his men. I changed my needles, though, said Lawson. That's why I built this room, man. All this plywood. I put it together nice to keep out the dust and keep everything clean. Well, it's going to take more than some tattoo to kill me. Fucking Haji's already tried, Tally said. There was a towel dabbing his shoulder, and then the machine began to hum, and the heel of Lawson's hand pressed against his back. So the bodies, I was going to ask you. I heard they found the bodies of those missing 10th Mountain guys, Lawson said. Tally said nothing. I was wrong about all that, you know. I didn't think they'd ever find them. Lawson continued, putting a heavy hand on Tally's elbow. The plywood walls creaked in the heat, and Tally blew off the sweat beating on his upper lip. There was a vacancy in his chest, like when he was in a helicopter and it was coming down fast to land, as though only part of him was there, and he felt disconnected from the arm that Lawson held tight. The ink glistened with a ghoulish sheen against the pale white of his skin, outlining a figure with a raised arm and a row of horns protruding from their head. It looked more menacing than Tally had expected. So where were they? Lawson asked, pausing for a moment. Just hurry up, man. I don't hear much is all, being at headquarters. Lawson adjusted his needle and put on a pair of glasses to look closely at Tally's arm. I asked for a line platoon last week, but my knee's still not good enough. He returned his needle to the skin. There was a single fluorescent bulb, almost as wide as the room, slung across the ceiling. Its wire ran from one wall to the next. On the walls were posters of either girls or motorcycles. There was also a calendar, like most guys had. Only Lawson had carefully drawn diagonal lines through the days that had passed, corner to corner. Tally looked at his left hand and the white band of skin where his wedding ring had been. That wouldn't last forever. It would be the same tan color as the rest of his hand and wrist in a week or so. But his shoulder, that was permanent. Lawson was shading the tattoo, creating the folds of a robe and a hardened face. Every so often he wiped the skin with a towel. Some guys would say this is tedious, he said. But to me this is where I get into it. This makes a tattoo. You could say it's a labor of love. I know you need the money, Tally said. I could do like an octopus on the other arm, with like a row of skulls here and flames shooting out its tentacles. This ain't a joke, Lawson. They've been cut up bad, tortured, you know, and then buried for a few months now. They only ID'd the bodies from their marks, their tattoos. Know what they were? Tally shook his head. It was a forensics team from Brigade, doctors and shit, came in and roped off the place and dug them out. They had cases of these little brushes, like looking for dinosaur bones. On the TV screen, Rambo and a colonel were arguing in an aircraft hangar. With the closed captioning, it first appeared like a scene from a foreign film. The colonel said that the war may have been wrong, but insisted that Rambo shouldn't hate his country for that. Hate? I'd die for it, Rambo said. So the colonel was confused. He asked what Rambo wanted. What every other guy who came over here and spilled his guts and gave everything he had once. For our country to love us as much, there was a pounding on the door. Who is it? Lawson asked. The fucking Pope. Open up, growled a voice. Roger for Sergeant. Tally scanned the room for his shirt. Then he remembered he'd left it in his tent. 
There was a towel on the bed. He covered his shoulders and took a deep breath, thinking that his aggression was useless against Rank. And what did that mean for him then, if what every guy wanted was what Rambo wanted? His wedding band skin was bare white like the titties of the poster girl next to him, and he no longer felt fearsome and a staff sergeant, and he steadied himself by touching the plywood wall that seemed to vibrate from the heat. are on the march. They are singing from the rubble of Ground Zero, the ruins of Damascus and Sarajevo, the bomb shelters of Amariya, the poisoned bodies in Halabja, from the mouths of murdered menfolk in Srebrenica. Poems are growing from their winding sheets in the mud and trenches of butchered nature. Their guns fire white poppies, Their flags are the colour of rainbow. Their hands fold paper cranes under the olive trees. From the bones of mutilated generations, they grow blossoms of resurrection. Listen, you tyrants, murderers, fundamentalists, mutilators, rapists, occupiers, racists, persecutors, autocrats, Crucifiers, fanatics, torturers, liars, obfuscators, manipulators, warmongers, silencers. Listen. Poems all over the world are saying enough. Thank you.